Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, fellow music nerds. Welcome back to Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a guitarist, songwriter, and producer originally from Vancouver, Canada. I love all aspects of making records. So I thought I'd make a podcast and bring in a slew of folks who've also made records in one way or another and yak about it with them. Each month, I'll be bringing you an in-depth conversation with a new guest. It may be a musician, a songwriter, a producer, or an engineer, but each of these people will have a fascinating story to tell about their lives and their involvement in the process of being a music maker and or a soul shaker. Thanks for joining me, and feel free to reach out to me through the podcast website at www.stevedawson.ca. And now, here's another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hey there, music nerds. Welcome back to season four. This is episode 95 with my very special guest, Gordy Johnson, joining me from... Well, via Zoom from Austin, Texas, and i um, very excited to have Gordy on the show. I've been trying to get him on for a little while. Before we get started, I would just like to mention the sponsors for our show, Union Tube and Transistor, making killer guitar pedals out of Vancouver, and Black Mountain Picks, making very unusual spring-loaded thumb picks that I dig, also from Vancouver. Um, thanks very much to those two companies, and please check out their stuff online and uh, buy some of their wares. I know that they would appreciate that, as would I. Of course, we have a page on Facebook and Instagram. The Instagram handle is Makers and Shakers Podcast. And there's a fairly new website up at makersandshakerspodcast.com. So um, check in over there and say hello. I have some t-shirts for sale for the podcast. And as always, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or however you get your podcasts. Having a subscription helps us to uh, get things boosted. And while you're at it, please review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can't do that on Spotify yet, but on Apple Podcasts, if you listen to it there, a review would be very helpful. Either just a rating or if you feel like writing a little something, please do that. That really helps the cause. And as you know, this podcast is essentially listener-supported, and if you're able to contribute in a financial way, we can always use your help to keep this thing going, especially these days where I can use your help more than ever. There's a couple ways you can do that. One is a one-time donation through the website, and the other is a Patreon subscription, which is a monthly subscription for as little or as much as you would like to contribute. Um, both of those are easily 
findable through the website at makersandshakerspodcast.com. In the top right corner is a donate button, and you can go there and choose your way to contribute. And I would like to thank a few people that kicked in this week, Michael Gay, Teresa Mannion, and Sean Fetter. Thanks to all of you guys. I really appreciate it. You guys are cool. So the other thing I've been doing in this season since the lockdown scene started kind of was was starting to take calls. And I haven't done that lately, mostly because I've been scrambling around and trying to stay busy with work uh, while I'm doing these podcasts. And I just haven't really had time to keep up with some of that stuff. But I'm going to start doing it again. And what I would love to hear from people at this point about is gigs. So I've started doing a couple of, I've, I've done two gigs and they've been kind of weird and, you know, it's enjoyable to see my friends and play some music. That part's great, but all the other stuff is pretty bananas. And I would love to hear what's going on out there. If there's musicians that have done some gigs, I would love to know. And I'm sure other listeners would like to know what is happening in, in your region and how the precautions are affecting you and really what your interest level in performing under those conditions is. I know mine is not super high, <laughs> I would say. Uh, I mean, the thought of traveling to me is horrifying right now. And so that's kind of out. The, the gig that I did was with Birds of Chicago this week. We, we did a virtual, hardly strictly bluegrass festival performance, which was great. Like I've always wanted to play that festival. And this year I get to play it except it's not really happening. So we did it here in Nashville and there's some cool stuff happening, but the process was, you know, I had to get two COVID tests. So that was pretty intense. And then full maskage, of course. And there was a pretty big camera crew there. So there was quite a few people milling around, but there was no audience. We, we just performed a couple of songs really in lieu of playing at the festival and, uh, you know, the music part was totally fine, but the two people in the band, JT and Allie, didn't wear masks because they were singing, obviously. One of the people at the thing said it was optional for me to wear a mask, and I didn't because they weren't. And we were kind of far apart or whatever, and plus I've been working with them, and, and we all got tested too. Um, but in any case, we had so we finished doing our songs, and then we had to redo them because I wasn't wearing a mask. So, Okay, music recommendations of the week. Oldies, newies, got a couple for you. There's a new reissue of Goat's Head Soup, the Rolling Stones record from, uh, what year is that, 71, 72? It's kind of my favorite era of, of, of Stones. They've reissued that album, and there's some new tunes that they plucked out of the, the ether, which is cool. And they, they're like vintage, classic-sounding Stones tunes, unlike some of the other recent stuff where they've dusted things off from the vault and added modern Mick Jagger onto old tracks, and it just kind of rubs me the wrong way. This is like fully produced old tracks from the day. Jimmy Page plays on one of them. It's pretty cool. So check that out. The, the reissue sounds really good too. It's a nice remaster. And I'm a little late to the party on the new Fiona Apple record, but um, I've been enjoying that a lot this week. It's called Fetch the Bolt Cutters. This one is super cool. It's kind of, there's some new directions and, and it's pretty adventurous and I would highly recommend it. So check those out. Oh, and before we get going here, I'd like to thank my buddy, Chris Kirby, who's out in uh, the outskirts of Halifax somewhere. I can't remember exactly where, but out in the East coast of Canada. And he put me in touch with Gordy. And so thanks to Chris for that. Okay. So this week's show, we've got Gordy Johnson here. He's, he joined me from Austin, Texas, where he's been living for many years, but he is a, a Canadian boy. And back in the, in the nineties, 
I got to know him. Well, I didn't get to know him, but I, I opened for him a bunch of times uh, when he was in his band Big Sugar. For me, they were putting out probably the coolest record, the coolest sounding records, like for me as a guitar fan and a musician, player kind of person. There was a lot of, in Canada anyway, there was a lot of sort of like indie rock starting at the time that I had very little interest in. But Big Sugar came flopping out of Toronto and totally blew my mind. They had a record that came out in the early 90s called 500 Pounds that to me like just had this crazy energy, killer off-the-wall guitar playing. It sounded like his guitar was going to explode half the time. And I just really loved Big Sugar and got to see them a bunch of times. And they evolved and turned into like a pretty ferociously heavy rock band. And then Gordy moved to Austin and started producing other people and mixing records for people. He's worked with artists like Government Mule, uh, my my buddy Sean Verreau and Widemouth Mason. He actually tours with them on bass sometimes. He's worked with Taj Mahal and the Black Crows. And he's got a great studio set up down in Austin and he works out of there. And he's actually, he's been doing this cool series too on YouTube you should check out called GJ and the Sound Shack. And uh, it seems like he wants to dispel some myths about his guitars and sounds and the way that he plays songs and stuff like that. So he kind of talks about that, that process. It's really cool, actually. So check that out if you can, bigsugar.com. And, and they have pretty much a brand new record out. It came out in May, I think, called Eternity Now. That's really cool. It's pretty different, actually, for Big Sugar. So check that out. Uh, he had another band called Grady and another project called Sit Down Servant. He's a busy fella. So it was an honor to have him on. And without further ado, here is my conversation with Gordy Johnson. I thought we could maybe just sort of hop in and talk about uh, when you guys, like Big Sugar, started out on the on the Canadian scene, and what what you were doing was so different from anything else that I saw going going on. Like I was just kind of a kid at that point, but I do remember when your first record came out and your music was guitar based, but it was so unlike all the Steve Ray Vaughan kind of guitar that was so popular right at that time. And also you guys had like a pretty distinctive style, like visually as well. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you saw the band as you were starting out and emerging from, from the Toronto scene? See, that's the thing. I didn't, I didn't see the band. I was, I was the band. <laughs> I don't, I yeah. don't, you know what I mean? I wasn't, <laughs> nothing we did was uh, in comparison to anybody else. We weren't comparing ourselves. We weren't trying to be different. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. That was the era of grunge and people dressed like crap, I thought. And so <laughs> it, it, it was like, well, I think people dress like crap, so I'm going to dress nice. No, I was already dressing nice. I was like shining my shoes. That was just where I was coming from. I, I listened to jazz. I was listening to Miles Davis and Sonny Rollins, and those dudes were always really sharp. And yeah. I took their music very seriously because... I felt like they took themselves seriously and they had enough consideration for their audience to, to be perfectionist. They, they strove for a higher thing in their presentation visually and sonically. So that was my barometer. You know, that was my right. gauge for if I was doing it right, not what Soundgarden was doing or what Nirvana was doing. Or, I mean, I just didn't, again, it wasn't like a protest thing. I just, I didn't care. I didn't listen to that music at the time. Yeah. I wasn't comparing myself to, I was comparing myself to 
you know, Otis Rush and Magic Sam and right. Louis Armstrong and yeah, yeah. You know, Duke Ellington, people like that, man. I didn't, I didn't care what year it was. Yeah, I wasn't even really aware of that at that time. Um, so yeah, so our, our approach to the Sonics and also to the, what we look like, you know, we were comparing ourselves to our idols, not to what was happening at that moment. Right. Right. And it was radically different. I mean, it, whether you meant, meant it or not, like it was unlike anything else that was going on, especially in Canadian music. I, I thought, um, tell me a little bit about what, where you came from. Like, I know you were playing with Molly Johnson and you, you guys mm-hmm. had sort of a thing going, but, um, I'm not su- super familiar with what was like, what scene you were in, in, in Toronto and like wh- where you were playing. And can you just sort of give me a, a bit of a background on, on what your, live situation was at that time right like right yeah. before your first record came out yeah well you know into the into the late into the late 1980s we started getting into uh like the blues was kind of popular at the time and there was just starting to be a renewed interest in jazz like traditional jazz i wasn't wasn't into the modern jazz there was some sort of new revivalists like when marcellus branford marcellus yeah. people like that uh christian mcbride dudes coming out playing in the older style uh, of jazz that we all really dug the people i was playing with and singing mm-hmm. with um so we were able to get a lot of work we were playing a lot at the time by the time we started working with molly johnson you know, we went from playing in scuffling little blues clubs, you know, making 30 bucks each. Sounds like a lot of money today, but believe me, in those, <laughs> day, you know, in those days, that was monkey money. You just didn't, you know, yeah. you, didn't, you didn't leave the house for that kind of dough. Um, so, yeah, playing in, in blues clubs was kind of scrappy. Man, we started playing jazz, and all of a sudden we were playing at Massey Hall and the oh, Imperial wow. Room in Toronto. and opening for B.B. King and Aretha Franklin and Ray Charles and people like that, man. And it was cool. It was like making lots of bread. Mm-hmm. You could spend most of the afternoon, you know, for a night gig, you'd spend most of the afternoon, like getting your shave on, shine your shoes. What suit am I going to wear with what tie? And does that match the neck strap? You know what I mean? Like you had this whole other <laughs> pursuit yeah. that went with putting on your show. So you could, you could really care about it. And, it really paid off. You know, when you took that, went to that level of making sure that you were sharp, you know, that, that really paid dividends because the audience responded. Um, so that's, that's a scene we came out of now by the early nineties, if anybody recalls, there was sort of a swing revival. Oh, right. Sure. And it was, which was kind of, in a way it's sort of superficial. Like the, the music wasn't great. The songs were derivative the fashions were all like thrift store, you yeah. know, post World War II kind of zoot, you know, zoot suit thing, and it was a bit of a fad. But that meant there was yet again even more work on the club level, right? So somehow we we found ourselves like we weren't part of that because I was also I was also into Hendrix and Cream and Black Sabbath and stuff like that, which made which <laughs> made me not really popular in that scene. Um, but we also listened to surf music, you know, Dick Dale and yeah, that's clear from your guitar playing. Link Ray was a huge hero of mine who I got to meet and work with in later years. But, um, so that approach to instrumental music was also a big part of what we did. So we, yeah, 
it was kind of serendipitous at the time because I think record labels all of a sudden looked at, oh, here's a guy with a suit and tie with a big gu- guitar, whammy bar, lots of reverb. Like, mm-hmm. oh, that's kind of popular right now. And then maybe that's why we got signed. We weren't trying to get signed. We weren't trying to be rock stars. We had no idea what that was, what that entailed or why you would do that. Right. It was really just, oh, they want to put us in a recording studio. Hey, that might be kind of cool. So we went and did that. And it was shortly after that, we started to see what came with that, you know, because videos and the potential of getting on the radio meant you got more gigs. And so the one thing just kind of led to another. And we were never, we were never striving for fame and fortune. You know, that was, we were striving to get our music heard and, and to make music and not really be a part of a scene. We were kind of fine being outliers. So how did the whole thing with Molly pan out? Like, was she, were you guys backing her up and was it billed as Molly Johnson or like at what point yeah. did you become Big Sugar? Well, it was Molly Johnson and Big Sugar. We were already okay. Big Sugar. We had backed up. We were kind of the first call backing band in Toronto. When artists would come from out of town, a promoter would bring someone from New Orleans or yeah. Chicago or New York or from wherever, Trinidad even, you know, promoters would bring in these artists and these artists were used to showing up with her and using a local band that would be rehearsed and ready to do their thing. So we kind of prided ourselves at being those guys. And so this and is we, you, you and Al Cross and Terry Wilkins, right? Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. And we, you know, and some other dudes, we'd have different keyboard players or sax horn players or whatever, just to augment the thing, depending what we, what style we were doing. Right. From country and rockabilly to, I mean, we backed up every kind of artist you can think of. What kind of clubs would, would promoters be bringing artists in from other countries to play in Toronto? Like what were the, was that at like the Elma Combo and stuff or where? No, I mean, mostly it, for us, it was either on the small end, like the horseshoe. Okay. Would bring one of the Nevels in and we would back them up. Cool. Or the That's horseshoe awesome. would bring in, you know, Otis Blackwell or, uh, uh, Lowell Falson, somebody like that. And on the high end, it would be like those big festivals at Harbor Front, right. the Womad Festival, um, okay. Carabana, things like that. And then we'd get called to back up reggae artists, Calypsonians or, you know, whatever. Um, so that was our, that was our thing, you know, where most bands were, well, not most, but when you think about popular music of that time, most of the bands that were on MTV and much music in Canada were bands that were jamming in the, their parents' garage. Right. They'd all known each other since high school and they had matching haircuts and they had a lot of zeal, but <laughs> a lot of <laughs> skills, yeah, you know, yeah. and that wasn't, we didn't come from that. I, that had, you know, I did that in the seventies, man. I wasn't still doing that. I was already working as a professional musician. Yeah. So yeah. That was, we just came from a different perspective to begin with. Right. Now, tell me about your bass playing, because that's something that's obviously recurred a lot through through the career of Big Sugar, and it's something mm-hmm. that, that you, I, you know, I feel like you take bass just as seriously as guitar as, as far as, like, its role in the band. Um, but you were originally, like, that was your gig, right? You were a bass player, right? Yeah. I, I started out... I was still in grade school playing with older dudes and playing bass professionally before I graduated to high school. 
not from high school to high school. Yeah, I was yeah. I was already getting paid gigs, so I spent the summer before high school uh, doing paying gigs, and I was kind of making a lot of money. I was looking at my friends who were getting like fast food jobs <laughs> yeah. and delivering papers and stuff, and I'm like, hell no, I'm making 150 dollars. Yeah. For, you know, this is 1979 and I'm making 100, $250 a night. Yeah. You know, hell yeah. <laughs> you give a kid that much money, watch out. Yeah, man. Um, so I, I picked it up pretty early on, you know, that okay. this is this is a viable thing. Were you playing upright or, or electric? No, I'm mainly playing electric. And then okay. once I was in my late teens, I started to play the stand-up bass. And to, I can, you know, I can still do it to this day. I bet. In Toronto... I, you know, I originally came to Toronto in the late 1980s as a bass player. I got hired to play in a pop band and just started jobbing around playing the bass. But that kind of a scene was sort of drying up okay. and it didn't offer a lot of job satisfaction. That's when I discovered there were a lot of blues clubs and people playing the blues. Hawk Walsh from Downchild Blues Band and Morgan Davis and Michael Pickett. And there were all these dudes in Toronto making really, really good music. I was like, man, I, I didn't know this was going on here. So I kind of, <laughs> I kind of got into that and it wasn't too much longer that I started to discover uh, that the neighborhood I lived in was all Jamaican people. It was like all Jamaican stores oh, okay. and businesses and grocery stores. And everybody I encountered was either from Jamaica or, you know, their parents were from Jamaica or I was living in this little cultural microcosm. I thought I didn't realize how uh, far reaching that was in the Toronto area. And then that was a whole other new thing that I, that I dug into. And as a bass player, of course, you know, reggae music and it's huge. Calypso and all that stuff. That's the, that's the main gig. Right. So yeah, that, that worked out great for me. And so I've always kept a one hand on the bass. I've always owned bases and kept yeah. my, my chops up and, Used to do gigs. We do like before there were such things as raves. Yeah, we would do like an after-hours party, playing kind of live hip hop, improv stuff, and everyone who was at the party was a musician. So people would just get up on stage, right. and you know, the guys from the Bare Naked Ladies before they were super famous were in that scene, and so. I was a bass player and I'd be playing bass four and a half, five hours some nights at these parties. That's how you get good. Just playing the bass. I mean, you get pretty good. <laughs> uh, and then we started to do gigs at like the Cameron house. Uh, it was oh, a okay. little, little uh, joint on Queen street where, you know, I was living there for, for a time. Really? And Molly Johnson kind of introduced me to the scene. there, a very artistic scene and appreciation for music. And we used to play, on the front bar, I used to stand on the bar with the bass. We had no amps. I'd take my stand-up bass, bring it down from the roof, and stand on the bar. I've seen bands do that there. Well, we're the band that started that. Okay. We were cool. the dudes. Kelly Hoppy <laughs> used to walk the bar with a saxophone. He'd yep. walk along the bar and tip his hat for tips. Mm -hmm. And the drummer set up near the beer taps just with a snare and a cymbal and brushes. And we would get that place swinging, man. It, I bet. Some weeknights, it would be just shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder people swinging. There was a piano in the corner. Someone would just start boogieing on a piano. Like, it was so, it was so random. Yeah. Uh, but I'm, 
Well, I'm pleased to hear that that's still a thing because <laughs> that oh, yeah. believe me, it wasn't a thing. The first day <laughs> we did that, the first day we did that, the owner of the place was looking at us like, "Are you out?" Of your freaking mind. What do you, what in the dang hell do you think you're doing? Well, people dug it, so we just kept on doing it. But that's that's another thing. Playing without an amplifier, no microphones, yep. you're just rocking a room full of people with a bass like they used to do. Right. You know, in yeah, the thirties, forties, fifties, there was no amplification. So dudes got really good because you had to make good, solid tone. So that just, you know, gives you chops of steel after a while. Yeah, no doubt. Um, and to you know, and bass playing. Just to go back to bass playing, I I'm the bass player on half, easily half of the recorded body of work of Big Sugar. Right, I knew that. Yeah, I I wondered if we could talk about that. Um, yeah, but yeah. Uh, so how did the switch to guitar happen for you? Like, at what point did you pick it up, or were you always playing guitar? Well, no. Like I said, when I when I discovered that uh, there was a a blues scene happening, you know, when I was, I was living in Windsor and working in Detroit, I I just started seeing this, a scene dry up and die. Like the Mm -hmm. kind of music I was playing as a bass player was starting to really not be happening. And it got kind of frustrating. I was out of work. Then when I did get gigs, I didn't really like the music. I didn't (laughs) like new wave, you know what I mean? Sparkly outfits. And I was having to dress up and wear eyeliner and learn dance moves. I was like, this is not (laughs) Not what you signed up for. I feel like this is not my thing. (laughs) So uh, when I discovered that, you know, I play the guitar, it meant it was easier to sing, start writing songs. And I really dug blues, man. I really liked John Lee Hooker and... Mm -hmm. Sun House and Muddy Waters, people like that. I really dug that when I first was exposed to it. Man, I I dove deep. And that's when I started playing. I guess I just started spending more time playing the guitar and quickly started getting hired to play the guitar, mm-hmm. backing people up. And so you just kind of follow life's path. I ended up playing a lot of guitar after that. But uh, but I kept on playing bass. You know, I, was, right. uh, I, I subbed in playing bass with the Black Crows one night. I, you know, I toured with Rich Robinson, a number of tours all over, all over North America um, as a bass player. And yeah. I've just, yeah. I've continued to, to also work as a bass player. Yeah, that's cool. So who were your big guitar influences when you were growing up? Like you mentioned Muddy and people like that, or were there others that were outside of the blues realm or was it pretty much the blues guys that, that grabbed your attention? Well, here's the thing, I guess, because I played multiple instruments you know i play steel guitar i'm a drummer as well i mean i really looked at i mean there are drummers that are more influential on my guitar playing than Mm -hmm. any guitar player you can name i mean i love Jimi hendrix but i kind of went to great lengths to not be influenced by Jimi hendrix because it's super easy to suddenly just sound like Jimi hendrix stevie was another guy stevie ray my Stevie Ray, amazing. The guy blew up like a bomb. Crazy guitar player. But so many guys fell so hard for Stevie's sound and his style. Especially at that time. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was really, it was kind of sickening, I thought. I was like, there's one dude who sounds like that, and all the rest (laughs) of y'all are not him. So just leave that dude alone, you know? Yeah, yeah. I I was more interested in Sonny Rollins. I mean, I think Sonny Rollins had more to do with, you know, the way I approached phrasing on an instrument than any guitar player. Ah, I mean, I loved Frank Zappa, 
as a mm-hmm. composer and as a guitar player. And his guitar playing led me to also down a path of listening to more horn players. Right. You know, yeah. guys who, you know, saxophone, John Coltrane, yeah. you know, any number of dudes. I loved uh, Louis Armstrong. His sure. phrasing on the trumpet was just like another voice to me. I loved his singing and his horn playing was just like another human voice. So I really wanted my guitar to to embody those things. I didn't ever sit around learning how to play Led Zeppelin songs or I mean I don't know how to play any of the guitar solos from uh, any songs really anybody else's songs. I didn't ever sit down and learn them. Mm-hmm. I was kind of I didn't want it to just doing your own thing. Water, well, I didn't want it to water down the path that I was on. You go down these little, uh, you know, side roads of suddenly you've put hours and hours and hours into sounding like somebody else. I was like, well, that's not- one thing I've noticed about your playing that you've always done, like even from um, from the first record, is like you approach your guitar playing very lyrically, like vocally, and and you do mm-hmm. a lot of that of of things where you sing along with your guitar playing. No, like not in a quiet understated way, but like full on, like you're doubling the solo or whatever with your voice. Um, yeah. Was that something that you were always kind of aware of was like playing really lyrically, like a, like a vocalist? Yeah. It's another voice. Yeah. It's, it's almost, it's more like a duet to me. If you're playing the guitar and singing, it's not like it has, it goes beyond just there's chords and you, you know, hum your little tune to it. It's uh <laughs> At any given moment, the guitar can speak for you yeah, and, and tell part of the story. And then it becomes conversational. There's a level of nuance when an instrument mimics human speech mm-hmm. where there's no longer frets. There's no longer white keys and black keys. It's a continuum. You know, the waveforms you're making are a continuum with round edges and uh, unpredictable transients and things like that that just that draw i don't know i just think it draws your attention it's infinitely more interesting to listen to i can't i've never worked on scales i've never practiced scales or you know any of that stuff that's just not my it's just not where i from or where i go yeah (laughs) did you ever sit down and learn like you mentioned sonny rollins did you ever sit down and learn solos of like horn players and stuff or were you more absorbing that on a on a deep level, but not necessarily like learning the notes that they were playing. The closest I came to learning a bunch of notes, I listened to the Louis Armstrong, Earl Hines, Hot Fives and Hot Sevens. I listened to those records so many times that it just got burned into my memory. And instead of sitting with a turntable and moving the needle, trying to figure out each phrase, I could sing it in my head. So I'd sit down and think about West End Blues, you know, all those little phrases. And I didn't necessarily remember them all in order. Just the ones I remembered, I could, if I could think it, I could play it. Over time, the highway between your imagination and your fingers gets shorter and shorter and shorter and you travel faster. (laughs) You know what I mean? There's one way to look at it. So if I could think it, I could play it. Well, that was a nice place to be, but you have to have things to think about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So even though you've shortened that distance, it helps if you have things to think about. So I had kind of committed a lot of that uh, Louis Armstrong phraseology to memory. So it just, it came, just came out. out. Even, 
Yeah. And then I could pick my own notes to put to it. I could apply it in places that were unlikely. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, same with Sonny Rollins, Miles Davis. Man, I used to put those records on and fall asleep and just let them play and play and play. And I I at one point kind of believed that in my subconscious that there was (laughs) phrasing was getting in. (laughs) It was like uh, learning by osmosis. I'm just around it enough. It'll just seep in. And I, Amen. Oh, I don't know, man. It, it's so. probably true. I think it happened. So when you went in to make your the debut Big Sugar record, had you been in the studio before? Or was that kind of your first experience? I had been in a studio. I actually used to sleep on the couch of a studio <laughs> in Windsor, Ontario <laughs> yeah. uh, when I was a kid there. I was a teenager, man. I wasn't old enough to be in bars. I was playing all the time still in bars. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I would. I was homeless for a while. I mean, I slept in a park for a while. I was so broke. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, I, I think I, I don't even recall entirely, but I probably had a session, got hired to play on a session at a recording studio. And I went, first of all, it smells like coffee in here. It smells good. <laughs> Everything is soft. The couches are soft. The walls are soft. There's like, wow, there's places to like crash everywhere here. Feels good in there. (laughs) I was looking at it as a survivalist and I dug it. It was like, man, the board and all the lights and hearing the sound and I loved records. It's like, what now I get to be on a record? Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. How do you do, why does it sound so good? You know, I was instantly curious and the George, uh, George, the studio owner was, I mean, he was a crusty old guy, but he was really kind to me and he, Anytime I stood there and took an interest, he explained things to me. And cool. I just kind of was a studio rat. I was always hanging around. And if he was hanging around, you ended up playing bass on something. Sometimes it was just go plug in all these mic cables. Sometimes it was, can you go pick up a pizza for these guys? Right. Uh, and then one day, someone brought a drum machine to the studio. No one had <laughs> ever seen a drum machine. And they were amazed. Because it was a drum machine. And messing with the drum machine going, oh my God, listen to the kick drum set. It's crazy. Now, here's the thing, though. Very smugly, they thought, this will never replace drummers because it can only play one tempo. Right. 120 BPMs. And me being young, <laughs> so I know what it's like. See, now I got kids who know how to yeah, work yeah. social media better than I do. <laughs> um, here, while I was young, I was 18, 19, maybe. Mm-hmm. looking at this Lynn drum machine and they're going, wow, what can you do with it? It doesn't even do different tempos. And I went, uh, shift key. What, is, what <laughs> happens when you push that? Oh, look at that. And I showed everybody how to program the drum machine. Uh-huh. All of a sudden I was indispensable. Perfect. <laughs> I, could pro- I could make sounds on synthesizers. I didn't even play the keyboards, but I was like, yeah, but I know how to, you know what? Oh, a sequence. You need a MIDI cable. They're trying to plug a mic cable in. I was like, no, it's called a MIDI cable. MIDI, <laughs> it's this new thing. It makes this thing talk to this thing. No? Does it ring a bell? Okay. So suddenly I became that guy at you were the right studio. In, right in the ground floor Yeah. So technology. I, I spent a lot of time in a studio and, and, and also playing. I would just end up by default like, Right. Oh, we need a, this guy who owns a clothing store wants a commercial. Do you know how to you think you could come up with something? An hour later, I'd programmed a drum machine and made a keyboard sound and played some funky bass and yep. made it 15 seconds long. Hey, great. Perfect. So yeah, man, I'd, I'd had a bunch of studio experience when, okay. when, by the time we went in. 
where did you make that first record? There was a record label office that had its own studio on Spadina called Hypnotic Records. It was kind of uh, owned by a fellow by the name of Tom Tremuth, who was a sort of like a prog keyboard player okay. in the 70s. No, I'm not kidding, man. He was like yeah. into prog rock and stuff like that. But then he produced a record for Honeymoon Suite or somebody oh. like that, or Glass Tiger or somebody, like one of those bands. And had this huge success. So then he had a recording studio and started his own record label. I mean, he wasn't looking for a blues, soon to be a rock and roll, weird reggae band. <laughs> he wasn't looking for that. He, uh, like I said, the, you know, the jazz and swing thing sort of was becoming marketable. And I think he looked at Molly Johnson was the most popular artist. So he signed her and she quickly realized that, well, she had signed another record deal for another project she was doing and it was all becoming a little confusing and uh she didn't want to get sued i think <laughs> there's a lot of motivations i'm not clear on fair enough but she basically kind of railroaded him into okay here's the thing big sugar's really good and gordy my little brother is a really good singer no he really is make him sing because i didn't even, i wasn't even a singer at the time Oh my god! I didn't no, yeah. even I didn't even put that together. Is Molly your sister? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Well, yes, yes, she is spiritually for the sister of this interview. She is. Okay. And in terms of my career, she definitely is. And my kids, to my children, she's an aunt as okay. much as my own sister is. You know. Okay. So yes, Molly Johnson is in fact my sister. Okay. Um, but she completely hoodwinked all of us because we didn't know we were getting a record deal. The record label didn't know they were signing us. They thought we just came with Molly. So right. I'll sing a song. I'll sing a song. Maybe I'll sing two songs. It'll be great. Don't worry about it. It'll be wonderful. We'll throw a party. I'll throw you a party. It's like, what the hell just happened? Um, and suddenly the heat was on me to write original songs. Cause yeah. well, you, you need to have your own songs and stuff. They're like, Oh, uh, okay. Well, I didn't, I didn't, I'd written a little bit of stuff. I thought, well, I didn't know that was a thing you could do all day. So yeah, man, I kind of, like I said, I sort of stumbled into it. Did you have all the material from that first record done and ready to go by the time you went in? Or were you in there yeah. like write, writing and stuff? Or Okay. Songs like uh, maybe Just About Sunrise. There might be one other one that I wrote sort of like the night before going in. Yep. And they were songs that were based on, we were so you know, our music is still largely based on traditional forms sure. that we sort of re-express our own way. Yeah. And so it was quite easy to write songs that the band could already play. I was like, oh, you know how we play this one? I'll sing this instead. So we already had a thing yeah. that yeah. was established, you know, in terms of a rhythm and a groove and a key and things like that. So some of the songs I was singing for the first time when we went in the studio. And yeah. that, and that first record, it's just the, th the three of you, right? You and, and Al Cross and Terry Wilkins. Is, is there anyone else involved? Largely it's the three of us, but um, maybe two songs that were not recorded in front of an audience. Molly actually did throw a party <laughs> at the studio. There are about 250, 300 people in the recording studio what? sitting on the floor while we performed and we had all our Seriously? musician friends. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. 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 And they were actually quiet while we were tracking, which is the weird thing. And sometimes they weren't and, but mostly they were, but it gave the thing this, the, what we were used to was just being in wow. a 
live club with people sitting there staring at us and yeah. where we played our songs. So there's half a dozen or more other musicians kind of but around. The whole, the whole record was done with a live audience in the studio like that? There, I think the song Groundhog Day was done after the fact, maybe. I know there's a song or two that was not done. Uh, one song that's peculiar, here's a little anecdote, Sleep In Late was not recorded in the studio. They needed a video for a song on the record. And I was like, videos? Nah, I don't want to <laughs> hair and makeup and be posing around, <laughs> leaping about, acting funny in front of the camera, which later we did to death. But <laughs> at this time, we were still idealistic. Um, so we ran mic cables two floors down to the studio from a vacant floor in the office building. And we're talking like a hundred-year-old office building. This is like really cool looking space. We took a video crew and went to the, you know, 17th floor and ran mic cables out the window <laughs> into the studio. And so they recorded us at the studio, but we were two floors above sitting, playing sleep in late while the film crew filmed us. And the film crew was like, okay, I need you to do it again. I just need to get a close up of your hand. I'm like, uh, homie, that's not how this works. <laughs> <laughs> you shoot your ass off. We're going to do the song three times. And when we pick which take we're keeping, that's the, that's the one you're editing. Yeah. And the film crew was just like, well, um, director was like, yeah, but a week, you know, yeah, but it's okay. You can, you know, we can kind of cheat this shot. And they're like, yeah, no, we're not doing that. That's, that's <laughs> so, cool, man. <laughs> it's cool. Now it, it got us in a lot of trouble at the time that people got really, uh, and people, there's a people get stuck in there thinking that there's a set way to do things. Sure. And you know, we just weren't going along with it. It was like we're not doing anything else the way everyone else does it. So why would we do that the same way? That was a successful s single. That was like the one that that got you known, basically, right? Uh, it, I think, it got more recurrent play as things went along it certainly helped to have that video out there and we got invited to more parties and <laughs> we were we were seen hanging around the halls of city tv a little more and it didn't hurt the song that made a difference and moved the needle was ride like hell oh right okay when we made of we recorded ride like hell and it didn't really get played on the radio it wasn't like what was getting played on the radio i mean it sounded like cream in 67 people weren't yeah couldn't really see how that was marketable you know um but we put out a video and the video got played i was out in vancouver at the time and and it was like played to death out there like it was definitely how me and uh, and people that were into that kind of thing were oh, aware the, of you guys here's the thing we went on a tour 500 pounds was out there and we got a bunch of shows booked and we started the tour in vancouver so here's how this went. We flew to Vancouver from Toronto, rented a van and a bunch of gear, yeah. and then played from Vancouver to Winnipeg mm -hmm. to nobody. <laughs> really? <laughs> and I mean, like, freaking nobody. Yeah. And, oh, I had also gone to Texas. I had flown to uh, uh, Stevie's rhythm section, Tommy Shannon and Chris Layton, saw us playing we were opening for the archangels and we oh. opened for them and they freaked out and they loved us i saw, and took I saw us that on show. their tour 
I saw that show. Where at Lulu's in Kitchener? Oh no, I it was uh, I thought it was at 86th Street Hall Music Hall in Vancouver. That's where I saw the Archangels and I thought you were opening for them, but maybe I'm No, confused. we didn't okay. we didn't I don't think no, we didn't we didn't go that far west okay. with them. But we had made this connection here. Uh, and I had flown to Texas and spent a couple of weeks with Chris and Tommy playing gigs in Austin. And that's where my love of Austin and Texas ah, and my whole, okay. that's where that starts the early nineties. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then that trip was done and I came home. I came home and then I went on this tour and we flew to Vancouver. Like I said, Vancouver to Winnipeg played to nobody. <laughs> but the thing is the five or 10 or 15 people who saw us told their friends and the ride like hell video went on the air and the second night we played in winnipeg was slammed wow and then we went to saskatchewan the shows were slammed by the time we got to vancouver for the second time we sold out the town pump now we'd played three weeks earlier at some little like billiards bar to nobody and they yeah. hated us and we're yelling at us <laughs> to turn it down. And can you guys stop early? I'm not kidding. Can you stop early? That's a, <laughs> that's a real high point in my career. You know? Sure. Yeah. Um, we opened for Downchild blues band on that tour. Wow. <laughs> I think in Chilliwack and the crowd, all the bikers went outside <laughs> while we played and came in for Downchild. It was great. Um, now, by the time we got to Vancouver, like I said, there was a gig at the town pump and it was sold out. Yeah. And it was like, whoa, what is going on here? Something was different. Uh, flew to Toronto, did a show in Toronto at the El Macombo, and there was a lineup around the block. Awesome. And all of the Toronto newspapers ran full page stories about my trip to Texas and how I'd been discovered by Stevie Ray Vaughan's uh-huh. blah, 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 which again, I was sort of blissfully unaware of all of a sudden I was on the cover of now magazine in Toronto. I was like, what the, I was, I was, I was living at the Cameron house. Who was paying attention? <laughs> Who knew? Yeah. What's, what's going on there? I was one day just minding my own business, eating a taco. And then, <laughs> then and all this. this. Yeah. <laughs> What about between the first record and 500 pounds? Because at that, like, were you guys touring after the first record or did it just, did 500 pounds just come out like right away pretty much? No, I'm going to say, I mean, hmm, it's at least a year of still backing up Molly from time to time. Um, Going, you know, we played around Ontario. The farthest we went was probably Thunder Bay. That was a long way away. Yeah. Montreal. We kind of went, yeah, from Montreal, to Thunder Bay, back to Toronto, okay. Detroit. That was sort of our circuit. Yeah. Uh, and didn't really get beyond that. When you recorded 500 Pounds, like, I remember when that record came out, that, that was a big record for, for me and a lot of fr- friends that I had in Vancouver. We were, like, super young, just starting to play. And that record, like, really shifted how I thought music could be made at the time because it was again like totally wildly different it was more of a rock record than than your first record yeah um were you trying to shift the direction of the band or was it just kind of the way things were going or like how, how much of a different experience was making that second record well completely different because i didn't have a band either at the time and uh tom our producer from the first record who owned the label and was i was still signed to him he to his credit 
I mean, believe me, there's been some legal <laughs> wranglings with oh, yeah. the deal I signed when I was, you know, 20 something. Yeah. Um, to, you know, there's a lot of regrets there, but I got to say, man, the guy was really hip in that he looked at me one day at a meeting and said, look, I don't understand your music. I don't know what you want to do. I don't really get it, but you're signed to me. Look, if you can promise me to not spend too much money, <laughs> I will let you go in any studio you want, as long yeah. as it's cheap and you can do what you want. Okay. That's pretty I, cool. What? You can do what you want. He didn't, there was no, at any time was he going, oh, I don't really hear a single or yeah. I think the vocal should be louder. Do you think the solo should be that long? There's never anything like that. Okay. So here's the guy who is known for, you know, honeymoon suite and all these really glossy pop things at the time. Yep. And he just sort of had the maturity and wisdom to go, I don't get what you're doing, but I bet people will like it. Go and make your record. So God bless the guy. Cause then that really gave me the, the launch pad to go, okay, it's whatever I say and it's whatever I think. Right. Yeah. All right. And if that's the case, I'm just going to do what I want to do. You know what I mean? <laughs> so what happened to, to the band? Like what happened to the original lineup? Why was there no band at that time? As my musical thinking got more expansive and I, I wanted to include dub reggae and reggae bass lines and yep. dance hall kind of forms of music from, my reggae influences, mixing that with freeform jazz and Frank Zappa, but also, you know, Cream and Hendrix and Black Sabbath, but still, you know, Sunhouse and yeah, <laughs> all of these things together. It didn't always rub everybody the right way. And you could get someone who was really good at one thing, but they weren't good at the other. They didn't get reggae at all. Right. And I was just like, There's, what, what don't you get? To me, it's all just music. Like, mm -hmm. do you like music? Then just do this. Al Cross uh, was an amazing musician. It, and style had no boundaries for him. He just played music the way he played it. Mm -hmm. It didn't matter what style it was. He could make a statement with it. In his own way, he would study it, but still make it his own. And he was a very communicative musician. When we played, we had a conversation. So Al and I just found ourselves with, you know, I was hiring a different bass player almost weekly for different gigs and dudes were busy. There was no money in it. Dudes right. were busy making money, <laughs> yeah. playing with Holly Cole. Or right. That's the thing, with, right? You got to be able to pay the dudes if you want. Yeah. Them. Dude, yeah. another dude was playing with Murray McLaughlin. Well, that paid better money. Big Sugar was more fun maybe, but yeah. You know, making no money isn't as much fun as making money play music. So, so did you did you make that record like you and Al Cross? Like, were you playing bass live with him, and then you would overdub the guitars? Is that how you did it? Yeah. Now, there's a time frame of about a month. I seem to recall. I've told the story enough times. So now I believe it's true. Um, we did the bass and the drums first. Okay. Songs that we maybe had played with other people in some form or another with yeah. other bass players, but also largely stuff where I would just say to Al, Oh, you know, this kind of a thing. Yeah. Like the meters, you know, yeah. okay, I'm going to play this toots and the Maytals bass line. You play like you're in the meters and then <laughs> I'll do something with it later. <laughs> and we played the drums and a bass. Wow. And we got that session done. We had our little two reels of tape 
Yeah. And then a month later, we could afford the studio again, and they were open enough to have us in there. We went back, and I put all the guitars and the vocals on. Wow, that's crazy! So I think we mixed and, it one day, and then and did you have <laughs> the did you have it pretty fully formed in your in your brain going in, or was it just like a matter of experimenting until you got the sounds right? No, I you know. I think from my early days in the studio where time is money, you're making mm-hmm. a commercial for a clothing store. You have yep. till five o'clock, <laughs> you know? So when I went in the studio, it used to drive me crazy. And I rubbed, I got friction with engineers and producers my sure. whole career because people like, hey, it might be nice to try this. Why don't we experiment with this? Why don't we try putting the mics here? And my brain doesn't work that way. When I walk onto the floor and put a microphone somewhere, it's not a freaking experiment. Right. This is where the sound lives that I want to capture. And I'm capturing this sound because it, it blends well with this sound. It's complementary to this other sound that's happening later that you don't know is coming. So what are you talking for? Just plug in the mic and shut up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I had it. I yeah. did have a fully a fully formed sonic picture in my head okay. before before count, counting the song off. Yeah. I, I'm not an experimenter. In st- cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Okay. Um, I experiment in my brain and then actuate that thing in the studio. Do you remember much about like, say on that second record, you know, like some of those, some of those guitar sounds are really badass. Like I remember hearing them just being like, man, I want to get that sound. I could never do it. You know, back when I was a kid, like growing up, I didn't have partly the right equipment and partly the touch and stuff. But uh, like, do you remember how you recorded guitars back in those days? Was it pretty simple? You just yeah. had a, had a one amp and stuck a mic in front of it? Or was there a thing that you did? I think there might be as many different amps as there are songs on the record. Really? Uh, well, you know, ultimately, not all guitars sound the same, you know, So, you, mm-hmm. but I select a guitar not based on the color of it. I mean, I, I pick it sure. up because it has a certain temper for a certain key, mm-hmm. certain guitars feel better in certain tunings. I play in a number of different open tunings as well as standard. So I would choose a guitar based on its personality mm-hmm. for telling the story of that song and plug it into an amp that just had the right gain structure, the yeah. amount of distortion or clarity or reverb. Some amps don't have reverb. You know how an amp fills the space that you're in. It doesn't make sense to set up my live rig in a small room in a studio, it's you overwhelm the space with sound. It doesn't all go in the microphone and then you've done right. nothing yeah. to, to capture. Then you're working at a disadvantage. So it depends on the size of the space you're in, the amp that you choose. And it has nothing, not nothing, but it has very little to do with 
it's a 1968 Marshall Plexi. Mm-hmm. If it's a Marshall Plexi in a clo- in a broom closet, you, you're not doing yourselves any favors there. Right, of course. Um, if it if it's the appropriate size space, then that can be an amazing combination. Otherwise, so- use an amp with a single 10 inch speaker for the situation. It also depends on what else is on tape. You know. Yeah, so, of course. A different way of uh, the sonic architecture is. I approach it differently. It has nothing to do with the pedigree of an amplifier. Like, yeah, oh, great. You sound great plugged into a Plexi Marshall. And so what? If, you're, if your name's Warren Haynes, I can plug you into any amp ever built and you sound like Warren Haynes. Yeah. You know, that's why I think why we have a successful uh, uh, career together making sounds in studios because I very quickly understood that Hey, it's it's Warren Haynes. He's gonna sound like Warren Haynes. Everybody, just settle down. Yeah. Let's just plug him in. Come on, <laughs> you know, it's the, it's not that. If if you're making a good sound, it's not that hard. And what it, I spend more time getting impediments out of the way. Oh, okay, that's you interesting. Know, like yeah. an engineer that puts up six mics for a guitar sound, like. Yeah, that's not. Now I've got more guitar sound than I can use in the track, and now it's not complementary to the rest of what everyone else is playing, and it's not helping this guitar player tell his story. Right. Yeah. You no, know? I mean you just use as much as you need, and not one bit more. Just just what you need, and put that in there. Mm-hmm. It, Some of those sounds, like um, I remember songs like Wild Ox Moan was one, and. Sugar in my coffee from those the, those early records that like those guitars sound like they're on the verge of exploding like they're they're kind of out of control almost like were were they I, that's a hollow body guitar probably and like just a really fucking cranked amp. Uh, well, cranked again for the size of a space, the studio presence studio, which I don't even think is there anymore. Um, it had a large recording floor with a kind of a low ceiling. And a granite floor. Oh. So padded walls, padded ceiling, really dead, but a granite floor, okay. which they stole from a bank building construction at the corner of Queen and, <laughs> and, and, and Crawford. <laughs> and it's, it's not even there anymore. But this granite floor sound had this wonderful reflective quality. And when you stood in that room, you know, by the time you played to a certain volume, the guitar starts to feed back and recirculate the sound. And then you're standing within sound waves. You know, it's kind of like if you go to, you know, go on a beach vacation, isn't it great to wade into the water up to, you know, up to your swimming trunks and then a big wave hits you and washes you onto the beach and the waves are gentle and you get caught in the rhythm of the surf. That's what it's like playing guitar in front of my rig. Right. It's waves of sound uh-huh. hit you in the back, and then you sort of become one with the flow of sound waves. And uh, m- my movement has a lot to do with I'm catching waves. You know, yeah. I'm really I'm surfing on sound waves out there. And it makes the guitar regenerate its sound and and take on more life or something. Or it, like there, like you said, it's, it sounds like it's about to explode because there's a strange vitality to the strings. The strings are already in motion. I'm then just sort of channeling the vibrations as opposed to right. always actuating the sound. Oh, I need a guitar with lots of sustain. Mm, that's a, 
that's there's a whole conversation there about how to achieve sustain. A guitar doesn't have sustain. There's a situation that promotes sustain. Does that make sense? So yeah. that's the that was the ethos of any of those kind of guitar sounds from any of our records. I was standing in a space with whatever amp, and the amp doesn't actually matter because as long as it's creating sound that it's is part of that, that is part of that signal path and is part of that and it creates that as long as you can create that environment, yeah. you're gonna make that sound. And is that like you, you guys were or are notoriously a loud band? Like was is that something that you feel like you have to have in order to get that effect and that sound? That part of of Big Sugar is like just volume it gets you there? Yeah. Yeah. And it's just I only put it loud enough. I mean I don't Putting it louder than it needs to be is not conducive to making that sound, neither. Like it's, right. it, it doesn't achieve that. I just turn it up until it goes, sounds right. Yep, yep. And it does that thing. And for Big Sugar, that's, you know, a lot of our catalog is that sound. I can play gigs in Austin and not play that loud because I'm also not making, I'm not playing those songs and I'm not playing them that way. It's not the only good guitar sound. Yeah. Um, you know, but yeah, yeah when, we're, when we're out there doing our thing, it has to be, there's a baseline uh, minimum volume that you can achieve that with and be below that. It's just not fun to do because then I'm just, I'm, I'm just a big sugar cover band at that point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can you tell me a bit about Gary Lowe? Uh, like he, it seems to me like once you've found him, he was your guy for a long time. And, mm -hmm. and I'm guessing that his you know, like the reggae background was exactly what you needed at the time. But w tell me a little bit about uh, your relationship with him and, and maybe what you learned from him as a musician. Well, before I met Gary, I had had about eight years of being an enormous Gary Lowe fan. Oh, really? I, okay. Well, I as I started, you know, I stated earlier in the conversation, I started to discover the West Indian community and culture in Toronto. and the music, going to gigs, starting to discover these hidden little gigs in places that nobody who was playing blues knew about. No, none of my rock and roll friends knew about it. I would just stumble into these things and go, damn, this is happening just a block from my house? What is going on here? Uh, and hearing this amazing music, and it gradually occurred to me, hey, hold on now. I've been to about a dozen gigs. I've only seen one bass player. <laughs> <laughs> and this guy is the man. Every time I hear a reggae band, it's this guy, and he is crushing it. Yeah. And I was just a huge fan. And even uh, while we were making 500 pounds, we were still gigging every night. So we'd you know, work okay. at the studio all day and then go do our gig at night. And on my break from these jazz gigs or blues gigs, whatever we were doing, I would run down the alley at Queen and Spadina and run into the bamboo and watch Gary Lowe play with Culture Shock. And it, I, it would just get my mind blown. And then have to, you know, oh my God, my break's over and have to run back <laughs> to the mm -hmm. Rivoli and, and play my second set. Right. Uh, uh, so while we were making the record, little wonder that... Uh, you know, there are two or three bass lines on that record that come right from the Bamboo Club, right oh, from really? Gary Lowe's amp. Yeah, okay, man. Yeah. I, I ran back the bass line in Sugar in My Coffee comes right out of a Culture Shock gig. I don't remember what song they were playing. I heard Gary Lowe play those bass lines 
dozens of different times and dozens of yeah. different songs. Uh, and I just like, I, I want some of that. <laughs> and then it was, but then it was difficult to get other bass players to play those lines with con- that same level of conviction. It's hard, they, right? That's yeah. Well, they just didn't have a cultural vantage point to be able to speak that way. Yeah. You know, they didn't understand the, the, the depth of meaning behind those bass lines and the articulation and the importance of the monotony of repetitiveness yeah. that makes those bass lines so fundamental. Right. Um, so I went through dozens of bass players and I was just sick of <laughs> bass players at that point. And then I ended up playing on the record for that reason. I was like, I don't like anybody's playing anymore. Uh-huh. And my good friend, Kit Johnson, who's a fantastic bass sure. player, one of my favorite musicians and great person, just a really good buddy in those days. And he, uh, I called him up just to whine and complain. And he just shut me down and said, you know, why don't you just, phone Gary Lowe. Why don't you just hire Gary Lowe? Because otherwise you're just going to torture the rest of us forever. You're never going to be happy. (laughs) Would you just stop with the bawling? Just, I'm like, well, how am I gonna, I don't know him. He looks like a scary dude. How am I gonna, I can't just call him up. Can I? And Kit was like, well, you can't. He doesn't know you can't because he doesn't have a phone. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, but um, he plays with Paul Corby all the time. I think maybe, you know, if I see Paul Corby in the market, I'll I'll tell him if he sees Gary, maybe to, to give you a call. Like, a, oh, yeah, that sounds like the answer to my prayers. <laughs> that, that sounds like a year in the making. Yeah, no this doubt. This is never going to happen. Drive around till I see a guy who knows a guy. <laughs> <laughs> thanks kid thanks man great you wow i'll rest easy now dude an hour later gary Lowe phoned me wow like Amazing. no joke it's so quick he phoned me up and what did he say well here's the thing i didn't realize about the reggae scene is that dudes were getting ripped off oh. musicians would do these gigs they'd wait till four or five in the morning to get paid and then they wouldn't get paid mm. or they get paid half and have to split the money and it was just always this pack of fuckery around, around every <laughs> reggae gig. And I thought, oh my God, these are, these are the greatest musicians on the planet. I'm witnessing this scene of musicians who no longer live in Jamaica. Now they live in Toronto. Yeah. So all the classic records I listen to, those dudes live here. And right. they're not getting paid? I promised Gary. I said, look, man, if I... I don't, I'll not take money to make sure my guys get paid. You don't get paid by the promoter. You get paid by me. Yeah. I'll take care of the promoter. And if we get ripped off, I get ripped off and you get paid. I'm not doing that. And I, man, I never, ever, ever ask my musicians ever at any point in any time in my history ever to not get paid because I didn't get paid. Right. Like, no, I hired you dudes. I'll pay you. And believe me, I, like I said, I have been a homeless person. I, I know what's on the line when I, you know, <laughs> when you don't make your rent, I get what happens. So I took it very seriously, you know, uh, and Gary just heard that and was like, yeah, yeah, man, what kind of music you play? What kind of music you play in? Like, <laughs> didn't even know, you know, like, here's a guy, 
<laughs> he but took the, the thing is, he took the gig. In fact, when he showed up, it wasn't an audition. I was going to hire him. It was more to see if he liked me. It was more to see if, did he like what I was putting down? The band was auditioning for the bass player. That's a first. <laughs> well, kind of, but he didn't know that. And he, so he showed up at my house with a, a, a dry cleaning bag with, a, with his stage clothes and his bass in a shoulder bag. Like he was ready to go on tour. Like, no, 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 we're not leaving today. (laughs) You get to go home after this. We're not going yet. Um, And we just talked mostly and sat and played a little bit. And was there any, uh, was there any process of like where he, where he was uncomfortable doing the stuff that wasn't super reggae ish? Like I didn't ask him to. Okay. So he was always doing that thing that he did. That's all I wanted him to do. That's okay. what I'd been beating up bass players for, for years. I was wow. like, he's like, Oh man. I, I said, you, you ever play anything besides reggae? Oh yeah. Yeah, man. I play reggae and, and, and a little bit ska. <laughs> so, Oh, okay. So both kinds of music, reggae and ska. Great. <laughs> you know, that was, that was it. Yeah. Um, he'd never heard Led Zeppelin. He had, he had heard that, Stairway to Heaven was a very famous song. Okay. That was his exposure to Led Zeppelin. He'd heard about it. Right. Um, he knew Jimi Hendrix was a black guy. Okay. That was it. He knew that there was a guy named Floyd who had a crazy shining diamond song or something. <laughs> no, I'm not kidding, man. This is like his level of understanding of, you know. Things he, outside he, of his sphere. He yeah. had been dancing at a disco, you know, so he knew what disco sounded like. Okay. In the seventies. And other than that, he just lived in his community and played music with people in that musical community. Yep. And that's all he knew. Wow. He never really assimilated. And I thought, I'm not going to be the guy that wrecks it. <laughs> you're gonna just keep doing what you're doing, man. Because that's he, what I did yeah. he dig it right away or was he was he like, What the hell is this? Oh no, he was I've I've recently, since Gary passed, I've dug up all this archival stuff and I listened to the first gig we did together was yeah. in Pontiac, Michigan. And Gary, Gary played the bass on that first gig and he crushes it. Ugh, so like, good. because I didn't ask him to do anything he wasn't already doing. Like, uh-huh. how's the bass line to this song go? He's like, Oh yeah. He practically wrote that bass line. You know what <laughs> I mean? It's like, I'm not asking, I'm asking you to do bass lines of me impersonating Gary Lowe. (laughs) So, and we both played, as it turns out, our philosophy of bass playing and how you produce a tone. We both used insanely heavy strings. Bass players would pick up, I'd ask them to play my bass on a gig and they'd be like, Oh hell no, this, I can't even, I can't even press the strings down. Oh wow. The first time I picked up Gary's bass, I went, Hi, honey, I'm home. Look really? at this is exactly this is exactly the way I set up my bass. Yeah. It's exactly the same. Hasn't changed the strings in seven years. You can fit change of a dollar under the 12th fret. It's like playing an upright <laughs> bass. But that's part of why they sound the way they do. And course, to yeah. this day, man, there's a couple songs I can tell you definitely I played bass on on Big Sugar Records. Mm-hmm. And then there's some songs where we would pay, we would hand the bass back and forth between takes almost. Really? Like Gary would play, and then I would, I'd go, no, what about this? And I'd play, and then Gary would play, and then I would play, 
and then sometimes it ends up being a mix of both yeah where yeah. i play the out like the gone for good outro i'm playing bass but gary plays in the rest of the song and then there's a part in the bridge where he was kind of playing rock and roll like the who and i was like oh no 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 play like gary low do 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 oh oh yeah man yeah man like yeah no go back to playing go back to doing what you were doing and it just made it more better so yeah it was it was zero ego zero competitiveness there was nothing he was the first guy who just like yeah man he had no ego about it there wasn't a drummer we ever worked with or I could sit down at the drums and say, no, dude, it's like this. Yeah. And not have guys get a little, a little bristly, like, yeah. oh, you're going to show, you're not even a drummer. You're going to show me what to do. You know, whereas yeah, Gary, Gary had no ego. He just didn't study that. He just came from a different, you know, music was love to him. And he just, we'd pass a bass back and forth. And, you know, that was just the way we, the way we did that. Is there a is there a record that you think like as far as your whole thing with him and and maybe with Kelly but particularly I, I guess with Gary where you feel like that came together better than any other time? You know, it was a uh, with Gary it was just a sure thing. Anytime Really? Yeah. Anytime we picked up instruments, a thing happened. Mm-hmm. It was like that with me and Kelly too for a mm-hmm. time. But with Gary, anytime we picked up an instrument a thing happened. If I was playing drums and Gary was playing bass, a thing happened. I play bass on Turn the Lights On. Gary's playing acoustic guitar. And oh, really? It sounds the way it does because of that little yeah. that little relationship, the way we play time together. Yeah. Our that note lengths, cool. dovetail, note length, note value, the weight of things. It's all, if we doubled apart, if I played a guitar you know, clucking and chucking along with yeah. his bass part, you couldn't hear you couldn't hear them apart. Like you could look at the wave files in Pro Tools and look at the way the wave files are drawn and they're exactly the same. Wow. We could both play a bass part and you can't any other bass player, I can tell by the wave files whose bass playing it is. I can yeah. look at Big Ben in Pro Tools and go, Oh, that's Big Ben's take. Yeah, okay, that's Big Ben. Mm-hmm. If I put my take, I can I know what I can recognize my wave sure. file signature. Gary's looks almost identical. Really? <laughs> That's yeah. Cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Funny little thing. Huh? Yeah. Uh, as as you guys went along and made more records, like did your did your you as a you know as a more seasoned studio guy, and of course that's something that you did more of, like getting into producing other artists and stuff as well. Do, do you find that your um, approach to recording music changed at all, like through the Big Sugar Records? Um, yeah, my approach evolved. I wouldn't say it changed, but you know, you pick up, you pick up tricks along the way and you learn to express yourself along the way. I mean, I'm at a point now where I don't even have an engineer or an assistant to anybody. I mean, I can wire the whole place and make Uh, all the decisions. I I work the software and the, the wiring and everything myself. I know. I know the sound I, I want to achieve. And I have, a, of course, a color palette that I like to paint with, where there's certain, you know, there's a, a certain kind of character to a drum sound or a bass sound that I, I'm particularly fond of. And so mm-hmm. I tend to write and 
make music where those sounds are appropriate. Yeah. Uh, but if I'm recording somebody else or recording a song that requires a different character to the sound, then I, I know how to achieve that as well. Mm-hmm. But when I make big sugar records, I, I paint with a certain batch of colors on the palette. Right, right. And so the, the new record, Eternity Now, just like it just came out, right? Or has it been out for a couple yes. months? Yeah, um, I know. It just like a month ago. So how different did you have to approach that? I mean, like, is that you playing bass again on this? Like, I, I didn't see the credits for the record. I've listened to it a bunch of times, but I don't, I don't see the credits. Um, uh, is it you playing bass, first of all? No. Oh, okay. Actually, because, see, we had made, this is like the third version of that record. We had made oh. a record. We'd made a record when Gary was alive. And then um, there was all kinds of fuckery and publishing arguments with one of the co-writers. Oh, okay. The drummer of the band at the time uh, bailed to go join another band without telling us, giving us no notice. Like he really, really shit the bed on the whole thing. I'm not naming names or blaming anybody, but it, it really, it completely pulled the tablecloth off the table for us. Uh, So we kind of had to start over again. And in the process of starting over again, Gary's cancer became more aggressive and he got sick and he wasn't able to come down. And then that whole thing just, it just all fell apart. So we found ourselves at a crossroads going, I mean, we've had all these personal, all this personnel bullshit to deal with. And we've had a couple of other false starts with new drummers that just were horrible, 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 horribly wrong. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And now my, now my, best friend and co-creator is dead. Like, I don't know what yeah. do, why do I want to even do this? Now my wife and I sat down and really had a, a you know, that, what do they call it? A come to Jesus moment, mm-hmm. come to jaw moment where we kind of went, okay, why do this? Okay. Answer these. I answer the question. Why do you want to do it? Why would you do it? If you do it under what terms and what are you going to say when you're doing it? Like, you know, all of those questions. and in a very short space of time, the two of us sat down and crafted the concept of a record, the songs, the lyrics, why you're doing it, why they're in this order, who's Mm -hmm. doing it. And we surrounded ourselves with people that are like family, people that we love, dudes that we make music with and have known for years and are right there with us. And I got Big Ben, who's my bass player and, and, and partner in the band Grady, and Ben and I have been playing music since the mid eighties in, in Toronto. Okay. There's a guy I've known my whole life and we had this musical relationship. We had a decade of making Grady records together and touring together. And I thought, well, I'm never going to get, I already know I'm not going to get someone who plays like Gary Lowe. Right. They don't make bass players like that anymore. Those guys, there's a couple of them still alive, but I don't think Flabba Holt is going to come on tour with me. I don't think Robbie Shakespeare is going to join Big Sugar. There's a couple of guys, and I'm not kidding, man. There's only there's only four, five dudes. There's other good reggae bass players too, but they don't play like that era yeah, of reggae. They don't they don't come from there. Mm-hmm. This is a guy who's first generation that you know. So I I don't want someone who plays like that. You have to play that. So that's a that's a fool's errand to try and replace him, to try and replace that. Right. So I just looked around me and thought, you know, there's Big Ben. He's standing there 
ready to help. What do you need me to do, G? Like, <laughs> do you need, you want to just like hang out and would that make you feel better? If you need me to not call you, you mean just like keep people away? Would that make you feel better? Like I can do sound for you. I can go and tour manage for you. Like, what do you need me to do, man? I, I'll wow. do anything to keep mm-hmm. you guys like, well, I like your bass playing. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start there. I mean, he was already there. He already knows all the songs. He'd been on tour with us for decades. Mm-hmm. He knew Gary. And the first rehearsal, he showed up and he was kind of damping his notes and playing with flat wound strings, trying to play like Gary. And I yeah. went, whoa, 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 whoa. First of all, let me show you something. We're not doing that. I don't want you to play like Gary. I want you to play like Big Ben. Big Ben has a, he tunes his bass lower, he uses round wound strings. He has a more rock and roll approach. He's a huge Johnny Winter fan, you know, psychedelic blues yeah. kind of dude. And I thought, look at the music we're making owes as much to prog and psychedelia and glam rock as it does to reggae and dance hall and sky and all, you know, to me, rock steady. It has all those things in it still. But let let me let everybody express what they do, you know? So yeah. Big Ben plays bass on the record, and okay. he plays it like Big Ben. And the only time I'd send him back to do it again is if he wasn't playing like himself. Right, like, no, right. man, take it home and work on it, yeah. and you show me, you show me. Yeah, This is how the song goes. These are the notes, but how you play it, come on, man, do that, do that Big Ben thing, man. I'm on yeah. You know, I want to feel that. And there were a couple songs I played bass on, and I knew the song better because I wrote it. Mm -hmm. And I was playing like me, which is kind of like me playing like Gary. Right. And as attached as I was to that version of the music, I said, you know, here's the tracks, Big Ben. You you play it. All the same, all the same notes played on the same bass. And I couldn't make it feel the way he made it feel. Mm-hmm. It just gave it a, a depth. And it's almost, I, I want to say it's like a stately uh, posture. Like it, the music just stood up straighter mm-hmm. when he played it. I thought, hey, man, you're the bass player in Big Sugar. You play on this record. <laughs> so there's one song that I play Moog bass on because I love my Moog bass pedals and okay. I played it on one song that I wrote when I didn't have the band here. Which, but other which than song is that? Strange Spectacular. Okay. I I wrote that for my daughter and I just I made the whole song myself in the studio. But other than that, the rest of their record is Ray Artiaga playing the percussion and my wife playing percussion. Everybody who's on the record sings on the record, so okay. all the back vocals are the band. You know. Um. So it sounds the way it does because I got those people who came to me in my time of need and and were there when I needed them. That's the sound of that record. Yeah, the percussion stuff is great. Like it's got it. It's it really sort of brings out some seventies soul elements or something to it. Mm. There's a lot of like I don't I don't know if it's more congas or or bongos yeah. or whatever, but uh, but it, that really stands out on the record. I think and uh, like Wonder Woman and Anything Is Possible or a couple songs too that um, they're like really stonesy, like stonesier than I've heard you do anything really with big sugar before that maybe it wasn't possible to do stuff like that with, with Gary. I don't know. Um, I mean, it's there, man. There's, you know, throughout our catalog, there, there are songs that 
like what we mentioned, Gone for Good earlier. That mm-hmm. sounds more like The Who in 67, you know? I right. mean, that's that's early British power pop writ large. It's It was our own way of doing it, but that was also part of our, you know, I was really into Sid Barrett music and early right. Pink Floyd. Cool. So that that finds its way into our, now that you know that, you listen back to our song list, it's like, oh, oh I, I can kind of hear that. Mm-hmm. You know, King Crimson and Gentle Giant and all the early prog stuff, that that's in there. You know, I've I've used a Mellotron for a long time on our records. Mm-hmm. Um and on this one, especially that I was just like, it's not gonna be one of the things on the record. It's the thing. Right. It's it's kind of the I only used, you know, prog and psychedelic keyboard sounds on the entire record. There's it's not like there's piano playing on the record. There's a Texas Farfisa organ on one song because it's Texas psychedelia on uh, everything you want it to be. The rest of it's Mellotron. It's the one, it's the sound. I want the album to have a personality yeah. and that suits where our frame of mind is now. And it's a limited palette, you know, it's a monochromatic kind of a palette. It's good it's to like, have that. It's good to yeah, have some limitations, I think. Yeah, a little bit. Self-imposed, you know, yeah. um, on purpose. Do you have a Mellotron there? I do. Cool. I've also had, you know, I mean, look at technology makes things nice and easy. I have all of the sounds recorded and sampled in a library that's on a hard drive that I can easily access without right. firing it up an old wooden thing full of <laughs> full of one eighth inch yeah. tape loops with pulleys and levers and gears and oh my god. I hear you. No, I don't need that. I don't want that. <laughs> Could you just tell me a little bit about your Austin scene? Like, um, I'm not sure when you actually made the move down there, but um, I, I know it's been a while. Uh, what is it that you love about Austin? And and are you, is that your home for good pretty much? Or do you see yourself moving back to Canada or? I've lived here longer than I've lived anywhere in my life. Oh, wow. Okay. I've been here going on 17 years yep. of land ownership. And before that, I was still coming here every year. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, I've been I've been living here a good long time now. Um, maybe my scene is—I couldn't be in a better place creatively. I feel like you know, m- most of what I need to do what I do is solitude and isolation. And I'm not in a city; I'm in the country. So, okay. I, you know, I make my sounds as loud as I want to with yep. the doors open. I stand outside and record. I mean, I'm sitting outside now doing this. You know, nice. And I can do that in January. <laughs> which yeah. is also appealing. Yeah. Uh, if you're born in Winnipeg, you get it. <laughs> uh, and musically, you know, Austin, although it's changing and changing and changing, people bemoan the fact that it's not the old Austin, but I mean, it's still a pretty cool Austin. I sure know a lot of great musicians that it's, it's important to go out and play music. That's not career driven or career minded. Mm-hmm. I, I don't do things for my career in Austin. I do things for my music in Austin. I go and play bass with a bunch of jam, jam band dudes, funky improvised, you know, loose arrangement. I'll play bass for four hours. I love playing bass for four hours as much as I love for playing the bass. I love doing it for a long period of time. Sure, it's sure. you get into a, a into zone, zone when you yeah. do that. I started I started uh doing gigs as a drummer. I take my drums and go you know on Sunday nights or whatever and 
play for four hours, three hours of just two chord dance floor funk for people to dance to and rappers get up and singers get up and I just lay it down in the back and get to play drums for a whole night. Awesome. I mean, there are things like that that I do. I'll, I was playing steel guitar a couple nights a week Great. in Austin. You know, yeah. I, I play bass with Ray Arteaga playing Cuban music. And that's hours and hours of people on the dance floor playing the same three notes, getting yeah. that deep Cuban, you know, approach that's a zone. to bass. That's a whole other zone. Yeah, man. So <laughs> that, that only enriches what I, what I do for the rest of the world. Like when we go on tour and I'm playing the guitar, I wouldn't play the way I do or sing or write or anything mm -hmm. if I didn't have that and have access to that. And do you still play with guys like uh, Chris Layton and Tommy Shannon? Are they still in your world? Or are they kind of, I mean, I know Tommy uh, Shannon's sort of semi-retired, but. Um, he still plays all the time in Austin though. Uh, I mean, semi-retired means he didn't tour. Right. But he plays every week well, oh, when there were gigs. Yeah, gig. yeah okay. when, bar, when there were bars and patrons. And <laughs> Back in the like good old that. days. Yeah. yeah, in the good old days of three months ago. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, Tommy was playing once a week or twice oh, okay. a week. I mean, you could see him at, Antones or the Saxon, Tommy yeah. was always playing. Yeah. And Whipper is largely on tour. I just saw him playing in the Hendrix Experience show oh, he's a couple doing months that. Okay. ago. Yeah. So, I mean, these are people that are, you know, known to us and dear to us. So we don't make music that often anymore, but uh, mm -hmm. they're still, still around. I mean, Whip's a guy who still needs a gig, you know? I mean, we all, sure. want, get, we all want to get a call for a gig, busy, yeah. busy or not busy, you know, so... Yeah. yeah. Every once in a while, I'll call him up and say, "Hey, man, you want to want to do this? Come play." I did my steel guitar gig with him a couple of times. He came up to the Continental Club Gallery and played a bunch of gospel songs. I played some Wicked. Sacred Steel stuff, and yeah, nice. Yeah. And 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 I I saw some of those uh, GJ and the Sound Shack things that you're doing. So is that just something <laughs> you're you're doing because you got time on your hands and you you want to? It seems like you want to maybe dispel some bad information that's out there about like your <laughs> some, some of your songs and, and some of your guitars and shit uh, well i've got a new one coming out this friday i basically uh i've got it sort of honed to where i can put out one a week yeah it's kind of by popular popular demand we had so many questions there's just an avalanche of questions on every format like uh -huh. instagram messenger facebook messenger right. our website email address like so many questions about what did you do? How, what kind of guitar is that? Can you tell me about this? And I thought, why don't I just answer the questions once a week? I, I make all of our videos. I do all of our artwork. I produce mm -hmm. all of our audio. I was like, I can do this stuff. Why don't yeah. I just, okay. You know, technology. do you remember, like, can you, can you recall, like if somebody wants to know what guitar you played on a certain song, can you remember? Yeah. You can. Okay. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Pretty like pretty accurately. And, yeah. There's also photographic evidence of these things, but right. I can also tell from listening. I can go, oh, wait, I know which guitar that is. Right. Like, yeah. I recognize it. Yeah. Nobody else might, but I can. And even basses, I can tell what bass was used on a particular thing. Hey, one other last guitar question I wanted to ask you. I know sometimes you use finger picks. When do you use finger picks and when do you not use finger picks? I always use finger picks. Oh, you do? Okay. I use finger picks on my thumb and first two fingers. Yeah, and then if I want to not use finger picks, I have two more fingers that are soft right. and do it. I, and I can, I sort of have to fan at the strings with them because of where they're lower down on my hand. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's a huge variety of sounds 
if uh, if I'm doing a session, sometimes I'll use a flat pick. Mm-hmm. If I'm not there to sound like myself, if I need to put an acoustic guitar yep. track on a singer's record, you know, I I don't need to sound like old Gordy Johnson picking the blues. You know, I just grab a <laughs> yeah. I just grab a, a a light pick or whatever and play, you know, an acoustic guitar part. So I right. I still utilize other forms of of playing on the bass. I'll only use a pick if it's called for in a recording. Yeah. Sometimes a pick makes a bass record better. Sure. And so then I'll do it. Other than that, I play bass with my fingers. But, um, but guitar, you, you've you always played with finger picks. Yeah, I started playing with the finger picks probably, yeah, in the early 90s. I just kind of adapted to, when I played in open tuning and playing slide yeah. and more of that delta slide guitar, a lot of those guys were playing wearing banjo picks. Yeah, and man. I started playing banjo, like, oh. Now I'm wearing banjo picks to play banjo and guitar. Oh, I started playing steel guitar. You also wear finger picks to play steel guitar. Yeah. Ah, well, why take them off now? (laughs) (laughs) And it makes my rhythm, I play very rhythmically. I mean, I don't think of myself as a guitar soloist. I know guys who burn when it comes to soloing. I don't really do that. I really look at it all as rhythm and having that metal on metal, upstroke, downstroke, two fingers, three fingers, one finger. Like I have all these rhythmic options with the finger picks uh-huh. that I don't get with a flat pick. Yeah, um, I, use, I use finger picks too. So I, I'm always curious to see how people came to that. But that's that's really interesting. Yeah, through folk music, through folkloric yeah. approach to playing slide and open tuning and banjo and steel guitar and things like that. It just, it became part of my regional accent, I guess. Yeah, no, I get it. Thanks so much for um, taking this time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. And I've been a fan for a long time, so it's great to get a chance to talk about some of this stuff. And I uh, wish you all kinds of luck with the new record. I mean, I know the timing's terrible, but... uh, Yeah, Yeah, it's not a good... It's not a bad time to put out a record. People are at home listening to music. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You can buy the vinyl online and get it shipped to you, you know. Did you you have a... Did you have a ton of tour stuff go out the window? I guess you must have, right? Yeah. yeah. Everybody did, though. Yeah. You know, it's look, man, 100 years from now, all we're going to remember is that there was a pandemic, not that we lost gigs. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like if we survive this, we'll, there'll be another day, you know? Yeah. Sure as the moon goes around the world, we'll do some <laughs> more gigs, but just let's just wait. I'm not in a hurry to do it. Let's, Me too. I'm, I'm kicking back, man. All right. Well, thanks, Gordy. I really appreciate it, man. Yeah, my pleasure. Nice talking to you. All right, you too. Hey, everybody, that was my conversation with Gordy Johnson. I hope you enjoyed it. I had a blast bringing it to you, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks, two weeks from today, for another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. See you then. Over and out. Thank you for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. You can visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. As always, I would like to thank Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver, BC for his help with research, and we'll see you next month for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.